Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Uh, thank you, church family, so much um, for leaning in with us and praying with us and participating in that. That's really uh, important. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting or are online for the first time, I didn't introduce myself. My name's Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited about unpacking the scriptures for you uh, this morning. Before we do that, a uh, couple of things about what we just did related to what we just did. Uh, number one is please continue to pray uh, through this week. We need uh, your prayers and um, uh, connected to that is if there is anybody here or anybody online who um, uh, is not able to be at the conference, is not signed up for the conference, uh, but would have a little bit of time on Friday or Saturday or Friday and Saturday and would be willing to come onto the campus and um, go into a room and with others and pray for what's going on, uh, then we'd love to have you do that. So I already have one person who said they'll be here. Uh, it'd be great to get a small group of you, even if you can just give an hour. I can give this hour on Friday or this hour on Saturday. Uh, that would be fabulous, and uh, we'd love to invite you to do that. Um, if you can do that, uh, let me know. Either send me an email this afternoon or, or Monday, uh, sort of early in the week, and I'll try to connect you together as a small group, and then you can come and be on, on site uh, praying for what's happening in this room uh, on Friday and Saturday and or Saturday. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to say. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say is, um, uh, by the way, the Friday night is open to everyone. So uh, maybe you weren't able to sign up for the conference. Maybe you're working, not able to get the time off. Uh, maybe it just didn't feel right for you, uh, but you'd still like to be involved. Please come on Friday night. It is an open service to the public, so you don't have to be registered. There's, there's no cost attached to that at all. Uh, and, and the service is going to be a service of healing. So what we're going to do is we're going to have an extended time of worship, we're going to have a little bit of teaching on healing, and then we're going to have an opportunity to be prayed for to receive uh, healing. So you are all invited and bring your friends. Uh, Friday night, 7 p.m., right here in the chapel. All right, we're going to unpack the scriptures now, so we're going to start by reading them. Uh, Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 13. If you like to follow along, uh, it'll be on the uh, screen as well. He left that place and came to his hometown, this is Jesus, of course, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and jo Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, but not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons 
anointed many with oil who were sick and cured them. God's word to us today. Amen. So we have been in the Gospel of Mark since uh, the beginning of January, and we have been following this kind of emerging ministry uh, of Jesus. And if you remember back at the beginning of the Gospel, what happens is uh, Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist uh, down in the south in the region of Judea, just outside of Jerusalem. And then after that, what happens is, and he spends the 40 days in the wilderness uh, as well, and then what happens is that he sets out on his Galilean ministry. What that means is that Jesus leaves the southern sort of region of Judea. He travels up to the north with his disciples, and they do ministry in and around uh, the, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. So he's in the towns and villages of the region of Galilee. That's why we call it the Galilean ministry. And so what he's doing is he's declaring that the kingdom of God has arrived. That finally, finally, Israel, who've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the end of their exile, have finally can wait no more. Yahweh has not forgotten his promises. He has not broken covenant. He will fulfill his purposes. However, but it's going to require ears to hear. It will require discernment, Israel, because it's not going to happen in the way that many of you have come to expect it to happen. It's going to require a radical understanding of kingdom. And so that is what he's declaring. You see, the people of Israel had over time started to mix their faith and mix their covenant and mix their law and mix their beliefs with certain national aspirations. And in many situations, a hatred of the outsider as well. We're the people of God and we can't wait for God to come and destroy you pagans. And some of that's understandable. They were treated pretty rawly by some of the pagans. It's quite a human response. But they'd mixed this in with their national aspirations. They'd learned to hate certain outsiders. And I think it's one of the reasons that Jesus ends up uh, in a lot of his parables, a lot of his teachings, a lot of his interactions with non-Israelites. If you think of the Good Samaritan and what he says about Naaman the Syrian and the Roman centurion and the Syrophoenician woman and the Samaritan woman at the well and on and on and on, it's a lot of outsiders, people outside of Israel that Jesus is calling to become insiders into the fold of God. So we have this declaration that the kingdom is coming. Repent and believe the kingdom is near. It's at hand, says Jesus. And as well as the declaration, there's also demonstration of the kingdom. We've seen healings and we've seen exorcisms. And two weeks ago, we saw the calming of the storm. And last week, the, the children so beautifully uh, led us through the passage where the young girl ends up being raised from the dead by Jesus, and they acted that out so uh, wonderfully for us. So, so declaration and demonstration of the kingdom. And the result of all of this was that crowds were following him everywhere. They're pressing in on him. Of course they were. Wouldn't you? I know I would. Another thing we've seen is that when Jesus goes into a town or a village, and he did this in our passage, he goes into a synagogue and he begins to teach. And quite often the people are just amazed at his teaching. They can't believe it. It's different. They describe it, the Bible describes it rather as teaching with authority. 
It isn't just the regular reading of the Scriptures and some rabbinic commentary on it. There's something different about this. There's a power behind this teaching. There's an authority that comes with it, and I assume what that means is that it cuts to the heart and lands in the deep places of the soul for people. And there's an authority to it because the preacher, Jesus, actually claims on on at least one occasion that the words that he is reading the words that have been long read by Israel and long studied and long poured over and long reflected on are actually being fulfilled right now in their hearing. Finally, after thousands of years, these words are now coming to bear in me, he says. And I imagine that some hairs on the back of necks were beginning to go up and hearts were beginning to race as the ring of truth is there as he speaks, teaching with authority. Wouldn't you love to have been able to listen to Jesus preach? Be fabulous. So the specific instance that I'm talking about, of course, is when he's in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he starts to read it, and he says, this is now being fulfilled in your calling. Well, in our passage, here we are in Nazareth, in a Nazareth synagogue, and this is how the people responded. Where did this man get all of this? What wisdom is this that has been given to him? What deeds of power is he being done, uh, being done by his hands, rather? But then it seems to shift. Wait a second, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, sorry, isn't this, he says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, he says, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And then the passage in a really brutal, sad, tragic way, says, and they took offense at him. The people took offense. Nazareth was a small town. It was about 20 miles away from the Sea of Galilee or thereabouts uh, when you were walking. And um, it's, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament, which tells us it's not a significant place for the people of Israel. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Nathaniel says, uh, what good can come out of Nazareth? So you wonder if it was a town that was maybe mocked a little bit or looked down on or whatever. So it wasn't a particularly significant place. It, of course, was the hometown of Joseph and Mary. And so after they traveled to Bethlehem and Jesus had been born, uh, which we read about in the infancy narratives at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, then they returned to Nazareth. And so this is the place where Jesus grew up. This is the place that Jesus learned to be a a carpenter. This is the place that Jesus would have presumably played with the other village children. This is the place where he would have attended school in the synagogue. He would have probably hung around the marketplace when he was a teenager. And now in our story, this Jesus who grew up there and did all of these things probably that I just described is the same guy who's now teaching with such authority. And he's performing miracles, and he's creating a stir, and he's drawing crowds, and healing people, and his hometown couldn't handle it, couldn't handle it. You probably know the well-known proverb, familiarity breeds contempt, right? The idea of that proverb is that the more familiar you, you, you come with somebody, the more you know someone, there is always the possibility that you can end up uh, feeling contemptuous towards them 
under certain circumstances. So what it means is uh, you might know somebody who, who maybe has made mistakes in their life and you know their story and you know the way they've messed up and all these kind of things. And then maybe you know, they kind of make it in life and, and maybe they become famous or they win the lottery or they get a really good job or something and everything just seems to work out for them. And you can end up feeling like, really? Like, I know that guy. Like, that hasn't happened to me. Why did that happen to him? You know, and you can become more contemptuous towards and this familiarity breeds contempt. That's not the only way that that can, that can be worked out, but it's an example of it. I feel jealous towards them because I know of their bad qualities and then it's, it's worked out for them in life. I don't think that's the case here at all. I don't think that people uh, understand how bad Jesus was and, or anything like that, but it gives you an idea, that, that kind of modern proverb gives you an idea that the people are hearing Jesus speak with authority and perform miracles and they find hard to get past the fact that this is Jesus who played in the dirt with my kids. And they just can't get past it. We know his brothers and sisters. We know the family. And so Jesus quotes a proverb of his own. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and except among his own kin and except within his own household. Same idea. What does this tell us, church family? It tells us humans are pretty fickle people, right? We're pretty fickle people. Miraculous acts, profound healings, authoritative teaching isn't enough for lots of people. They might be impressed by that and say, wow, look what he's doing. But in the very next breath, they stumble over the fact of who's doing it. This is just so-and-so that grew up here. This is, uh, this is, you know, somebody that we know so well. It's not somebody from the outside. You know, if it was somebody from the outside, somebody with a certain worldly pedigree, if it was someone from somewhere exotic, then, then we can kind of get all over that. But it's not. We're a fickle people. Some scholars actually think that by calling Jesus Mary's son, they were actually uh, insulting him. Because in first century uh, Jewish society, it was very patriarchal, and you were always the son of your father. You were never the son of your mother. And so they, they wondered whether being called Mary's son was actually an insult towards him, or perhaps it was even a reference to his unusual birth. I don't think we often think about this beyond Christmas time, but I'm sure for Jesus as he was growing up, I'm sure there was people in Nazareth and, and you better believe all of the surrounding villages knew the story. There were people in Nazareth and people in the surrounding villages that didn't think that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that thought his birth was pretty unusual. And so I'm sure he grew up with all kinds of rumors swirling around and maybe some mean things said about his mother too. I'm sure there were. And so again, this might have been Mary's son, uh, something they were using to suggest his illegitimate birth. It was kind of mocking because in that culture, of course, that would be shameful to have an illegitimate birth. And so the people took offense. The word can also mean stumble. They stumbled over Jesus. Later on in the gospel, Jesus is gonna say, blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Blessed is her who does not take offense at me. Blessed is the one who um, doesn't struggle with, with who I am because of their own expectations of who I should be or what I should do. 
And many in our people, many people in our world do stumble over Jesus, don't they? Many people stumble over the fact that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the, fi- and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People stumble over that statement. People stumble over the church and Christian claims and Christian theology. Lots of people will take offense at it. Within the church, people can take offense at God or Jesus, take offense toward Jesus. Maybe the prayer that you prayed and longed for was never answered and you, and you, you struggle with trust. And so you take offense at God because of that. We have doubts and we have questions because that's a really hard thing. And we're left with all of these things kind of lingering. One time Jesus was teaching in Capernaum and he was teaching a hard teaching and, and lots of the people that were following around him actually stopped following him. They turned away from Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus teaching and you say, no, it's not for me. And they walked away. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he said, are you gonna leave as well? And Peter pipes up, of course it's Peter. And he said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where can we go? The tragedy, though, is that people can take offense despite our confusions and sometimes pain and questions and difficulties. To turn away from Jesus is to turn away from the only source of the eternal life. It's the ultimate tragedy. The Christian faith is a pilgrimage, and we have to wrestle through uh, that stuff. Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. So in our story then, Jesus has spoken at the Nazareth synagogue and they have rejected him. And, and when he quoted that proverb, he said, uh, he said, not only is a prophet without honor in his hometown, but he also said, also among his own kin and in his own house. Remember, the, 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 the family members of Jesus would have been part of that Nazareth crowd, Right? They would have been part of that. And we know that his family weren't always supportive. Sometimes they tried to rein him in and they thought he was losing his mind. His family didn't always jump on board with Jesus. And one of his brothers is named James. And James isn't sold on his big brother's claims. James, I imagine, would have been one of the crowd who wouldn't have supported him. James, however, we learn from the book of 1 Corinthians, we learn that after Jesus' resurrection, he actually appears to James, his brother, and James converts. And he becomes leader of the mother church of Jerusalem, while Peter and Paul are off doing their thing. And he convenes the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And he writes the letter called James in the Bible, and he eventually gets martyred for his faith. He gets thrown off the pinnacle of the temple and clubbed, martyred for his faith in his older brother, That's his story, but at this point, in the Nazareth synagogue, James is probably just a a slightly puzzled and maybe slightly angry younger brother. It's helpful to remember and see things like that in the stories. It's important for us as well to keep the big picture of the gospel going to all nations and the church being a witness to the world, but also remembering all the small stories of the way God is working in individuals' lives and people's stories. James shared the unbelief of the Nazareth crowd at that time, but in a few years, he would become a man whose name was known throughout the land as a man of prayer and a persistent preacher and a man dedicated and fiercely loyal to his older brother, Jesus the Messiah. James would actually become known as James the Just. That's what the Jews called him. They called him James the Just because he was known to be such a righteous man. 
And so it begs the question, who in your life, in your family, among your friends, in your workplace, in the condominium building that you live in, who is there that is so, so far from God you could never imagine them ever becoming warm to God? Who is it that takes offense at the gospel, who stumbles over the gospel? Perhaps today you could commit or recommit to praying for that person. Oh, but Jamie, you, you, you don't know the person who's coming to mind, and I, and I trust, trust the Spirit is bringing people to mind, to all of you. You don't know who's brought to mind, like this person, they're so far from God, they're so antagonistic, and they have been for decades, there's no way they'll ever turn to Jesus. Yeah. And you're right, I don't know, but what I know doesn't matter. And what you know doesn't actually matter. What God knows is the only thing that matters. So maybe we could commit or recommit to praying for somebody who's so far from God and trust God with the outcome. The result of the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, of course, at Nazareth was that no deeds of power could be done there except he healed a few people. Oftentimes people are amazed at Jesus, but here in this story, Jesus is amazed at them, but not in a good way. Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith, their unbelief, and the atmosphere that lacks faith in the village creates a space where the powerful acts of God cannot land. And it's not that God isn't powerful enough to break through that. It's just that, it's just that the resistance and the rejection and the hardness of heart is so prevalent that it puts up a wall of unbelief. And God isn't going to just push through that wall. And so he leaves. And that's the most tragic part of the story. Jesus leaves, and you know what? The New Testament doesn't suggest that he ever returns to his hometown ever again, that we know. He leaves Nazareth and likely never returns. The second part of our passage, just uh, briefly here then, is that he starts to send out the disciples two by two into the towns and villages surrounding, uh, surrounding Nazareth and around uh, uh, Galilee and so on. And there's an urgency about it. He says, you know, uh, don't take any provisions, rely on the hospitality of the people. And I think there's a part of this that's similar to the Nazareth experience. Find out if the village you go into or the town you guys go into is like Nazareth. Is it, is, it, is it going to reject you, or is it going to be open? Is it going to offer you famed first century hospitality? And if it offers you that kind of hospitality, and it's open to messenger a message, then great, stay there. But if not, do what I've done with Nazareth, leave. And shake the dust off your feet. Jewish people would do that when they left Gentile regions. They'd actually shake the dust off their feet, a way of saying, we don't want to associate with Gentile land. And so for Jesus to say to his disciples to do something like that um, is, is pretty, pretty significant. That's uh, quite the statement to the Jews. You're acting like Gentiles. You're no different than unbelievers. You think you're on the inside. You're actually on the outside. And so what we have here is a story of Jesus making some disciples who are then to go and make disciples. And that has been the mission of the church ever since. And for 2,000 years, believers and churches have been doing that, reaching out into people's lives and, and, and revealing uh, uh, God to them and so on. The church has always been called to be part of God's mission, and, and God is always on mission. He's always transforming people and reaching people and loving people and revealing himself to people all over the planet. And so Jesus sends them out. 
And he sends them out with his authority. That's interesting. He doesn't send them with food or clothing or provisions, but something far more precious. His authority to preach, to heal, to plunder the strong man. And in verse 13, it says they did. They cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick, and they cured them. The disciples didn't always do a great job of that. Sometimes they came back to Jesus and said, we tried, but we couldn't do it. And Jesus gets exasperated at their lack of faith, but not in this story. It worked. These disciples, because of one, being sent out by Jesus, and two, because they were given his authority, were able to declare the kingdom and demonstrate the kingdom. Declaration and demonstration. Um, uh, Rob Reamer, who wrote the Soul Care book that we're going to be, uh, that people have been reading, lots of you have been reading, and we're going to be studying at our conference uh, in, in a few days, uh, wrote another book called Spiritual Authority. And, um, and I think it's helpful because he describes how the authority we have as believers are, is one, it's rooted in our identity. Two, it's expanded by our intimacy. And three, it is activated by our faith. So firstly, our authority comes from our identity. When we actually understand and truly, not just cognitively, but actually understand in a deep level who we are in Christ, we will live differently. When we actually understand what God has done and how that is far more than just a detached theological principle, but it's actually a life-transforming power, we will start to live differently. We will live from who we are. As adopted children of the King who are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we will enter into spaces not with a prideful posture, but with a confident posture of who we are in Jesus And I would say that you cannot act in authority unless you wrestle to the ground your identity. Christianity 101, and you'll never be done doing it, but we've got to keep leaning in to understanding and getting a revelation of who we actually are, and it will change your life. So our authority is rooted in our identity. It's rooted in who we are. But it's expanded in intimacy. This means you can't just throw authority around like some kind of magic spell. It doesn't work like that. We can never be of much use to the kingdom unless we are living in a growing, intimate connection to God. We can't just seek his hand. We must seek his face. The authority we have because of who we are gets expanded as we spend time in intimate connection to God. It expands our authority. And finally, it's activated by faith. The issue in the Nazareth synagogue was the people lacked faith. And the lack of faith created a space where nothing could happen, where nothing was going to happen. We must walk with a deep-seated trust in God's goodness and a holy expectation that God is going to do wonderful things in our midst. And that that faith will help us with our authority and also help us weather those inevitable storms that we face that I sort of touched on a little bit earlier. Too much of Western Christianity looks like functional atheism. It's not atheism at a belief level. We believe the gospel. We believe the scriptures. We believe theological principles. We can sign up mentally uh, giving assent to uh, what we believe, and that's true and that's good. But too many of our lives look like we don't actually believe. It looks like 
we're atheists. Our, our actions don't match our beliefs in other words. God has acted decisively in the world and we are called to be on mission with him. And for us, I think it needs grappling. We need to grapple with this idea of authority we have as believers. So question as we close here, will we look like the disciples who took Jesus at his word, who lived a radical life of obedience, taking with them his authority and seeing the kingdom come, declaration and demonstration, Yes, getting it wrong at times, of course, but carrying on and continuing the faith journey anyway. Or will we end up looking more like the Nazarenes who came up with all kinds of reasons to stumble, to take offense at God, and to amaze him at our lack of faith? So as we close out this morning, let me just crystallize two applications that you can take away today. The first one, as I challenged you earlier, is uh, are there people in your life, in your sphere of influence, who are far from God and you need to commit to praying for them? Is the Holy Spirit nudging you to start praying again? To have a new sense of, of purpose in the, in the prayer room for these people. And, and Lent just began on Wednesday. It was Ash Wednesday on the 22nd. And maybe some of you are, are following along the Lenten devotion we put online, uh, and that's great. Uh, but maybe some of you are doing, are doing nothing and you'd like to. Well, that'd be a great thing to do from now on Easter to Easter every day, pray and pray for the person to experience a softening towards Jesus and some kind of encounter. And secondly, as you ponder what I've said today about developing authority in your prayer life, in your witness, and you're pushing back against evil like we did together uh, during the worship set, how are you doing with identity, intimacy, and faith? Are you living into and out from your identity? Do you have a settled sense of who you are? And if you don't, what are you doing about it? Ephesians 1. That's a, that a great chapter to meditate on and internalize who you are and what spiritual blessings are available to you. Understanding that you are a child of the king. So uh, identity. Are you fostering intimacy with Jesus or just checking in with him on a Sunday morning? Are you developing your faith muscles? Do you trust God? A lot of people struggle with that. It's okay, no condemnation. It's okay to, to struggle with trust and faith and at times to have doubt. It's not sin. It's okay. It's part of being human. It's part of the journey. But we should try to address it. We should try to lean into it. And maybe you need your brothers and sisters to, to help you with that trying to learn to trust and develop your faith. So here's another Lenten thing you could do. Spend between now and Easter leaning into those three things, identity, intimacy, and faith. All right, God bless you, church family. Um, Matthew, would you come back up and team, please? And we're going we're gonna to close out singing again.